When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey guys, welcome to Ace Podcast Nation, the home of our new cricket series, The State of Play. This is episode number three, and I am Sai. The show is available in video format, youtube.com slash Ace Podcast Nation, and the audio version is available at all your favourite uh, podcasting and radio apps and platforms. We've also got many other series live and recorded featuring top guests, expert analysts, and more variety of subjects from MMA, football, cricket, mental health, films and TV, conspiracy theories, pretty much anything you could think of. We've probably got a show or a series on it and uh, lots of good guests and stuff coming up. So uh, give us a follow on social media. We've also set up a new social media page for this series, which is at State of Play underscore on Twitter and Instagram. So if you give that a follow, share it around and uh, yeah, we can start to grow it. Got another good show lined up with uh, another another top guest. But uh, joining me is that uh, we've got the usual trio of myself. And then firstly, we have uh, West Indian batsman, Mr. Kieran Powell. How are you doing, buddy? I'm not too bad. How are you? I'm all right, mate. The weather's been better the last couple of days in the UK. So it's like, it's not as I've, depressing. I've had some terrible weather here as well. You know, it's just been 33 degrees every single day. <laughs> it must be so difficult for you. I bet you can't wait to come back from the UK. That's what it is, isn't it? The weather's preparing for your arrival tomorrow. Thankfully. <laughs> That's it. And uh, also joining us, former Glamorgan bowler, Mr. Nine Norman. How goes it, my friend? Good, thanks, mate. You? Yeah, I'm all right. Obviously, you, you missed the last episode because you, uh, you were off golfing, wasn't it? I was. I was in uh, Portugal on a golf holiday, which was very nice. Nice little break after lockdown, I suppose, isn't it? Absolutely. It was needed. Didn't strike him very well, but uh, we weren't there for just the golf. <laughs> we're, we're there for the golf at all let's be honest but uh, and our, yeah, our, our special guest this today is uh, none other than former England Glamorgan fast bowler 2005 Ashes winner Mr Simon Jones how are you sir I'm very well you yeah I'm good thanks for coming on mate I've been looking forward to this all week oh I bet you are <laughs> I'm good I um I, uh, I was telling, so we had, uh, when was it, last Monday, we had Emil Heskey on the football show on the live run. And um, when we were just getting ready to go on air, like I was telling him about it, I was like, oh, I've got Simon Jones coming on on uh, the cricket show next week. And he was like, oh, he's a big fan of cricket, apparently. So there we go. Emil Heskey's, uh, Emil Heskey's a big fan. So there we go. Oh, nice. Uh, no, it's been good. It's, uh, Lots of uh, lots of good shows. Got a load of Welsh footballers coming up over the next couple of weeks as well on them, which I'm quite looking forward to. 
get uh, some of them on. But yes, so what we like to do, Simon, to start staff, start the guests off, welcome them in, let the viewers get a little taste for your kind of tastes and uh, interests when it comes to cricket and uh, stuff, is the Magnificent Seven, which is basically just seven quick-fire questions. Just say the first thing which comes to mind. Okay. Okay. Magnificent <laughs> Seven for Simon Jones. They're quite, they're not, uh, they're quite kind, some of the other, on the unscripted, uncensored shows, they're not as... Not as friendly, but, but these yeah. ones are just very <laughs> nice and gentle. Uh, so we got uh, Curtly Ambrose or Malcolm Marshall? Oosh, tough one. Um, I'll go Malcolm Marshall. Uh, Geraint Jones or Matt Pryor? Um, one of your five boys, so Geraint Jones. Uh, Flintoff, Stokes or Botham? Um, I'm going to have to go uh, Freddie. And uh, the greatest English bowler of all time? Uh, stats will tell you, it's Jimmy Anderson. Uh, so, you know, his, his career and, and what he's achieved in England, you, you can't ignore him, so he's got to be Jimmy. Uh, your favourite ground to play at? Lords. Best roommate? Adam Davis. Ah. <laughs> Hilarious human being. And uh, the laziest trainer? you've ever played with? Matthew Hoggard, by a distance. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So what we like to do as well, Simon, is like, like I say, we have the quick fire questions. And then just for maybe there's some people who are cricket fans and been living under a rock and are not familiar with you. It's just have you tell us a bit about you and uh, like where you grew up and, uh, and how, how you got your start in cricket, basically how you got to where you are today. Um, oh look, I think I started like every every lad or, or, or girl. Um, you start in the back garden, don't you? I think I started playing cricket when I was about six um, with my two brothers uh, and my dad in the garden. And then at primary school, I was quite lucky in Wales because generally in Wales it's, it's massively rugby or football. Um, I was lucky that I had a headmaster in my primary school who was massively a massive fan of cricket. And then when I went out to secondary school, I had another English teacher, Mr. Cricket. I think now you might know him. I'm yeah, not sure. I remember him. Yeah. Um, Mr. John Prickett, he was my English teacher. So I had a lot of backing with regards to the cricket front. Um, so that's how I started. I turned pro then uh, when I was 15. Um, I went to Millfield School. Matty Maynard came down to sign me um, when I was down there. Came to watch me in the Nets. Uh, made my first class debut, I think, when I was 17 or 18. And then made my England debut when I was 22 out in Australia. Um, and then I carried on playing for another... 18 years, I think it was. I retired when I was 34. So it's, um, it was it was a good career. I enjoyed it. Obviously, had many setbacks, but you know, if life was easy, then um, you know, it, it's just one of those things you just have to get all those hurdles. Yeah, absolutely. And at the end of the day, I think the those setbacks and the the things which the negative things which happen make the the positives feel and and all the more enjoyable for sure. Um, so like. Correct me if I'm wrong, you guys, but uh, is like 17, 18 quite young for a cricketer to make their debut? Or is that about our, our average for like county players and that? No, I'd say it is. Yes. I think back then it was, it was pretty much not regular thing, but you know, you would see lads of that age playing. I think now we, I think it's quite hard for the lads to break into the side that age. They kind of have to go through the academy, then the second team, then go into the first team. Mm. I think there's a lot of you know, 
competition places. Let's say at Camorgan, for instance, the younger lads aren't going to get an option there. Um, so, yeah, it was it's far rarer now than it used to be. I think he used to take a punt on a youngster. Like Wayne Law made his debut. He's probably one of the most talented batters I've ever seen, apart from Kevin Peterson. Um, he made his debut when he was 16, I think it was, now he won it. Yeah, I would say that. Yeah, he played at Colwyn Bay against Lancashire, and they had um, Quasi Macram, uh, Glenn Chapel, Peter Martin, uh, and a few others. And he got a hundred for lunch. Wow! It was incredible. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I think it was fairly normal back then, but not so much now. Yeah, it's funny enough. We were talking to um, Miguel Cummins on the last episode about the the coal pack deals, and then I asked him about the kind of the impact on the the players coming through, you know, the youth yeah. setups and the and the second team and this trying to force their way into the first team. Um it's definitely gonna have an impact. And I I know you missed that one, didn't you? With um yeah. with Miguel. What like what do you think personally about like the coal pack deals and the, the just the impact that they have on homegrown players coming through? I th- I think from a, a biased point of view, obviously I don't particularly like him because ultimately a county's going to go with an experienced Colpac player as opposed to giving, as Simon said, a 17, 18-year-old homegrown talent a go. Um, that's just fact. I mean, that, that will happen. You could give an 18-year-old lad from Cardiff an opportunity with no real experience or you could get maybe an ex-international from India or South Africa or Australia to come over as a Colpac and you know what you're going to get. Um, obviously they have a massive benefit for what goes on the pitch, but for the long run of the county game, I'm not too sure. You know, we saw sides like Northampton, maybe I'm going to say 08, 09, maybe that had like eight or nine non-British cricketers in there. Now, if someone can tell me that's good for county cricket, then I'd be amazed because it's just not. Two or three, yeah, fine, no problem. Eight or nine, it's not good because what's the point in having an academy? There's no point. Yeah. And the thing is, ultimately, if you're not, if the young players are not coming through the academies and having a pathway through to the first teams, um, in the long term, you're just going to lose. You know, you're going to those players are going to naturally just drop out of the game. And whether it's in five years, ten years, or further, at some point, they're just not. The talent's going to stop coming through, isn't it? Um, and people, I would imagine, like. Uh, people will stop signing for academies if they look at it and over the past five years no one from that academy has come through into the first team they will look elsewhere whether it's their parents or their you know their agents or whatever it may be they're ultimately going to look elsewhere if they look at sides and they're not getting the opportunities that they need it's a strange one Um, right then Kieran news stories of the week seems like there's only one place to start mate and uh, that was the, the second test. Didn't go well for uh, for the West Indians this time round. Yeah, I think um, obviously England had Drew coming back, so that would have given them confidence. Um, they obviously made some changes to the bowling attack as well. Um, Strip Broad with a point to prove. And I think he proved that nicely. Actually climbed into the top 10 in the world, how much of a point he proved. So... Um, I think the West Indies though would be disappointed in the batting more so than anything. Um, 
getting lots of half centuries, lots of starts, but no one's converting. And I think that was the difference with the match. You know, Sibley got 120, Ben Stokes got 170. They, they took time out of the match, but they also gave England a score in which they could be competitive and dictate the game. Um, West Indies being 200 for three or 240 for four to get bowled out for 280, that just let England right back into the match. You know, if they batted into the last day, an hour, two hours into the last day, getting 340, 350, um, it would have been pretty much impossible for England to have gone on and forced a game from that situation because of the amount of time that they would have needed to get a score on that pitch and to come and bowl the West Indies out in probably 40, 50 overs. Um, so I think that's probably the major concern for the West Indies. Obviously, a few of the bowlers seem to have picked up injuries as well. So. Um, lots more to think about in their camp than the English camp. I think the big thing as well is, if you look at the West Indies lads, if you looked at their fast bowlers, they look sore, didn't they? Let's be honest, we've, they've not played cricket in a long time. Yeah. And the test matches are fairly close together. Um, yeah. If you watch Shannon Gabriel and, and the other lads, they looked sore. And you got a feel for them because it's hard work. Yeah. Uh, when you look at England, they brought in Wokes and they brought in Broad, who were fresh as daisies. And they've come in and, and done a job. So... You have to feel for those boys in that, in, in those terms. It, you know, there was a pretty placid wicket to start with, and then obviously it sped up a little bit, and then they went up and down. But um, yeah, I, I really felt for those boys. Really. Do you, do you think yeah. that's why England made those bowling changes? Because I know there was a few eyebrows raised uh, when the team was announced that they, you know, they took Anderson out and they brought Broad in, and obviously Joffre Archer missed it for different reasons. But do you think that's why ultimately they made those changes, Simon? Because the games were so close together and. Of, and obviously, this is just of a massive break as well. Yeah, and you know, pe- people aren't bowling fit, are they? You could no. see the lads when they were in between spells. You could see them having a stretch, and you could see them winsome at, at times. Um, I think England's rotation policy has worked. Um, we had two fresh boys coming in. Um, it's, it's just one of those things. If they, if they've said at the start of the Test match we're gonna we're gonna rotate people, then you have to buy into it. You can't be saying, "Oh, why are they dropped Anderson? They haven't dropped him. They're rotating him." Yeah, um, and you know they brought in a like for like. They brought in Broad for Anderson. You know what I mean? They're super experienced a pair of them. I don't know many wickets they've got amongst them. Can't be far off for um, a thousand. Um, yeah. So I think England have, have worked it well. Uh, I'm not sure what the strength and depth is with the West Indies gear. And is it is it quite deep in the in the fast bowling department or not? Uh, that's that's the issue. The the two fast bowlers on the bench. One has played one Test match and the other hasn't made his debut yet. You know, it's okay. a fifteen man squad, whereas yeah. England have the um, full thirty man squad that's in the bubble to choose from. Yeah. Um, obviously, there's no other team in the world that could bring in someone off the bench with four hundred and fifty Test wickets, yeah. five hundred <laughs> Test wickets. You know, so um, that's there. obviously a massive plus. Yeah. But I think England played it well as well, looking at the long-term future in terms of they've got Pakistan right after this as well. Yeah. And knowing that it doesn't matter what fitness anyone did in the COVID lockdown, cricket fitness is completely different to running around, running five years or whatever. So for fast bowlers, it's, it's really important that they have that break in between with only three days between test matches. Huge. Totally agree. Yeah. Do you think um, we've seen the end of... Anderson and Broad playing together predominantly uh, now? I hope not. <laughs> um, I mean, they keep saying that, you know, in two years' time, three years' time, they're not going to be open the bowling together, which, yeah, it's probably going to happen. But people forget that Stuart Broad's got 
four years, I think, less than Anderson. And, you know, I, I genuinely think that he will overtake Anderson if he keeps playing. Um, as we've said there, to bring in someone like that's experience, there is no one else in the world game that can, can do that. I mean, how can, how can you bench a guy who's taken 450 and bring him in? It's just brilliant to have. You've got Archer, as Sai said, Wokes. There's even folks like Ollie Stone, who would quick. Wood, Wood, yeah, all these guys. The talent in fast bowling at the moment in England is, uh, is exciting, very exciting. Um, but on the, the other side of it, as they said, bowling fitness, there's nothing like it. You can run on a treadmill, you can run up and down an indoor school, you can lift as many weights as you want. If you can't bowl, you've got to bowl 20 overs, 25 overs, like these guys are doing. There's no replicating that. Uh, and I think we saw that with like Shannon Gabriel, Kimar Roach, the West Indies boys. Kieran, do you think, um, or as a West Indies fan, do you find it frustrating when you see the inexperience, uh, you know, on the bench, and then you've got like players? I know it's through the Colpack deal, but like Miguel Cummins, who's going to be playing for Middlesex shortly, and then you've got quite a lot of inexperience on the bench for the West Indies. Is that a bit frustrating? Uh, well, that's that's something of the making of Cricket West Indies. That's not actually the fault of the players, you know. Cricket yeah, of West course. Indies, once, once you get to a certain level of seniority, if you look at West Indies cricket throughout, throughout its history, they tend to not like players that aren't dependent on the board. So I'm not sure if you remember in the early 2010s, um, there's this massive issue where Chris Gale was playing every T20 league around the world, dominating the world, but he wasn't playing for the West Indies for two, three years. Um, same thing, they got rid of Ramner Sawan at 30 or 31 with 15 test centuries, when you think this guy should probably end up with 20, 25 test centuries. Um, Dwayne Bravo played his last test match at 26 or something like that. So, I mean, Cricket West Indies are shown to have tendencies to do things like this that continually put West Indies cricket one step behind every single time because these guys should ultimately just be finishing and we, this generation, should just be learning from these guys in that transitional period as opposed to being the senior players and not only being the senior players, but being the senior players that are probably in the next year or three, the ones that they're going to look to phase out and do the same thing and just keep ending up in that rebuilding process. That's why it's been 20, 30 years of West Indies being in the same position. Yeah, I guess, I guess using England as a comparison, um, Simon, that's one thing I think England have done quite well is over the last 10 years is uh, bringing in younger talent to play alongside the more experienced lads, just gradually bringing them in. Even like obviously you've got guys like Stokes and uh, alike who are, you know, they're so talented that once they were in, they were in. But I think they've done quite well just blooding some of the younger players like you look at um, Ollie Pope over the last couple of years, he's kind of been on the fringes. He's played a couple of games. And I think England have done that quite well, probably in the last 10 years or so. Would you agree I with think, that? Yeah, yeah. I think you have to, though. If you want to look to the future and you want to build the future, you have to do it that way. Um, if you've got an age inside, oh, yes, they're, they're still successful. What's going to happen when all that stops? What happens when people start dropping off? And then you bring in guys who aren't ready. Yeah. You've got to give them experience at the top level. So that's when you will find out if they are good enough. That's the only way you're going you're gonna to find out, is if you stick them in a blood. 
So if you don't do that, they can have all the talent in the world, but you know, there's a different level at test level. There's no hiding place. Mm. Um, and that's the only way you're going to find out if, if a player is good enough to play at that level. And England have done it brilliantly. They brought now, as as um, Nye said earlier about the, the the amount of fast bowlers we've got coming through. Um, it's credit to England the way they've done that. Um, you know, and there's some young, exciting batters coming through, like um, Pope as well. He looks he looks well. He's he, he's obviously going to be nervous. It's his first series, um, but you know, from what I've heard around the county circuit, he is you know he's exceptional. So. You know, England are, are doing well at the moment, and you know, give it five or ten years, they they'd have to do the same process again. Yeah, there was. I mean, even with like Sibley, people were calling for Sibley to be in the side for uh, for quite a while before he finally got the call, weren't they? Now, yeah. I mean, how, I, I've read some reports about him this week saying about oh, he takes so much time up in the game. I'm sure the lads will agree. Test cricket is about that batting time. What he did, along with Stokes, effectively allowed England to win that game. Um, yeah, you want people to score maybe slightly quicker than he did. But if you score 450 in a four or five-day match, you are very unlikely to, to not lose. You've got every chance of winning that game. Um, so I think people like Sibley that occupy the crease, Burns as well, score. Yeah, they don't score the quickest, but they take a lot of time out of the game and they also put runs on the board. Are Very, very vital to any test team. So I think he'll be solidified in that opening spot for quite a while. But now as well, do you think that when you look at that England batting lineup, um, and you've got Stokes, Root, Butler, people like this, they all score very quickly. Yeah. So you need guys, particularly at the start of the innings, to to be solid and almost bat time, for lack of a better term. And I think yeah. if you if you add to, I don't think there'd be enough balance if they didn't have the likes of Sibley and Burns at the top. And I think it works quite well. Um, so when I did, um, I did an episode of my story with um, Adam Hollyoke the other day, and one of the things we were discussing was back in the day when he was playing for England. Is basically before they, you know, they adapted to one-day cricket. They would use the, the the fifty overs as almost like the the stepping stone to the test side. You'd kind of work your way up, and then the test side was effectively the first team. Obviously, that's changed over the years where England. You know, adapted to the 20 overs and 50 overs and play in different teams. And I found it quite refreshing that when England came out for their second innings, it was, they were opening with Butler and Stokes and they were really going to try and push it on. Because I remember, particularly when I was younger, England would have come out with their usual openers, you know, back in the day and they would have been more concerned with not messing it up and not losing than perhaps being on the attacking and on the front foot to try and win the game. You know, in Butler's case, it didn't work. Um, was that something that, that, you know, is that the sort of thing which excites you about the likes of Stokes and Root and Butler as captain, Simon? Yeah, but I think if you're Joe Root as captain, when you've got the talent that's in your squad, you can take risks like that. Do you get what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Whereas I think in the, in the years gone past, the talent hasn't quite been there. Um, so they didn't have that luxury, uh, you know. If you're Joe Root, you're you know you're laughing as a as a skipper, um, you know. To have Ben Stokes and then obviously Josh Butler going into open, you know, if, if Josh hadn't gone out like that, those two could have just you know, taken that game away from them in no time if they could have got into their rhythms and stuff. Stokes played an exceptional innings again. He, he's just incredible that guy. Uh, but yeah, 
Joe Root's a, a lucky boy at the moment with the talent he has. Yeah, 100%. I said, I think it was on um, two episodes ago, that because people were, they kind of, there's these murmurs. Every time Josh Butler doesn't get a score, you'll see some reports in the newspaper or social media saying maybe he's not a test player. But for me, I think he should be England's Adam Gilchrist and he should just, they should just let him go and do his thing. Sometimes it'll work, sometimes it won't. Um, so just lastly on that test, I wanted to ask Kieran about um, some of the West Indian reviews, mate. Um, I wasn't so sure about them. I thought their decision-making generally when it came to batting wasn't great. But some of those reviews were, um, how can I put it, not good. What did you think of their decision-making? Um, yeah, in the first test, you know, when things are going your way, everything works. So take a review, it always seems to be umpire's call or hitting the wickets. Um, Counter-wise, counter when it's going against you, you know, um, it's just desperation and they were just pretty desperate, I think. Um, they didn't think through probably some of those reviews or most of those reviews because obviously when a bowler hits the pad, as Nye and Solomon both know, it's always out. <laughs> always <laughs> out. There's, there's always another out. set of stumps on each side, so for them it's always out. Um, never going over the top because they're all just five foot tall. Um, <laughs> so you need the keeper to be a good sounding board and, and give you some perspective on that. So Just desperation, really. Trying to find a way back into the game. Yeah, and I think... What took, what took me by surprise watching the West Indians in this test was everything which they'd done really well in the first test. Like their decision-making in the first test was exceptional. Their, their decision-making went batting, their bowling, everything was excellent. And then in this test, you could see a lot of inconsistency in all aspects of their game. Um, but like Simon and you mentioned, I think some of that might have been a bit of tiredness, maybe mental tiredness as well, um, coming into it. Uh, just moving on then from that, uh, from the test match, Jofra Archer missed the game through basically breaking lockdown rules. So he wasn't, I saw a few places reporting that he was suspended from the test. Uh, so to clarify, he wasn't suspended from the test, but because he broke the, the bubble rules and about the, like the, not the curfew, I can't think of the right word, but like the, the quarantine around the team, regardless of, when the test was, he would have had to isolate for a certain amount of days. It was just that those days fell when the next test was. Um, as his teammate, uh, Nye, would you have been a bit frustrated with him for going home and breaking yeah. those rules? I think because every everyone else in that squad would have liked to go home and see their partner, wife, girlfriend, whatever, kids. Um, you know, he chose to do that. He says it was just literally in and out of the house, but they all had, they all knew the rules. Um, and sadly, he broke it and he's paid the penalty. Um, I mean, it's good that he's got a clean bit of health, so he should be available for the last tests. The only thing that I do maybe agree on is if they were all isolating, why weren't they in a coach? Why were they given the responsibility to drive from the Rose Bowl or the GS Bowl, sorry, to Old Trafford? I mean, if they were in a coach, that decision would have been taken out of his hands for him, I imagine, but I, I don't know the ins and outs of it. Yeah, it's a weird one, isn't it? Because, like you say, like from his point of view, he, he said that he was in and out, but it's ultimately it's the same for all of them. Um, now, if England had got smashed in this game and the bowlers had had 
five days of you know chasing the ball around the boundaries, I think there would have been a bit more frustration. But I think the fact that the test match went well um, probably yeah. means that you know it's not not too bad. Um, Simon, I wanted to ask you. Obviously, like you mentioned, you made your England debut at 22. Um, I wanted to ask you about the pressure that's on Jofra Archer because of the sensational start that he made to his England career and, and his cricket career you know, generally over the last couple of years has been special. Like, How will he deal with that pressure? Because people expect him to bowl 95 mile an hour and you know, all, basically all, every spell all the time. It's got to be... Yeah, of course it is. It's, I think that's one of the burdens that you have as a, an international cricketer or, or sportsman or, or, wherever, or woman or wherever you are. It's, but for me, I've met him once. He seems a, a lovely lad. Um, and he seems really chilled out. And I think he kind of takes things in his stride. Um, you know, when he bowls the pace he does, with the ease he does, you've you got to think he's got a heck of a long career ahead of him. Um, it's just how England look after him, one. Um, but what people have to realise and what the public and fans have to realise is he's not going to bowl 95 miles an hour every day of the week. It's impossible. Absolutely impossible. There's no way the body can do it. He's going to have spells, he's going to have days where he bowls low, low to mid-80s, maybe 86, 87 at best. That's just one of those things. Um, you know, I think there was a couple of people whinging when he was bowling at Hampshire, I think. He was bowling 82, 83. He's only human. He's not superhuman. He's a human being. And his body hurts like everyone else's. And it's obviously before he qualified as a, a, an England player, there was so much hype about him. It, it must have been hard work for him. Uh, and then obviously he's made this, this dent in, in international cricket. Now he's, he's announced himself, especially in the World Cup, etc. And obviously now in Test cricket. But he's, he's going to deal with it. I think he's just one of those people that takes things in his stride. All right, he made a mistake. Uh, going from Hampshire up to Old Trafford, he went home. Um, he's 25 years old, he should have known better. He, he was in a, an environment where it would have been drummed into. This is nothing new, this has been around for a long time now. He just made a silly mistake. Um, it's just hard work sometimes when the press jump on it so much. Um, you know, he's, you know, he's fairly young, he's 25, he's not that old. Um, yeah. And he, you know, he's apologised, he's done the right thing, but his future is massive for him. Yeah, he's... he's... Special, special talent. Um, Kieran, I know you wanted to touch upon the T20 World Cup being cancelled, but the uh, the IPL is going ahead in the U uh, the UAE. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, I just I just find it puzzling. Why would you cancel a world tournament, but then a domestic tournament gets the clearance to go go ahead? You know, what I mean. I think the power that the BCCI has over international cricket. Um, it's, it's, it's quite sad because, you know, everything sort of goes based on what India, India wants to have done. And I guess some guys, especially the guys on the T20 circuit, their lives revolve around whatever India wants to have done. So, I mean, it's just, it's just weird that they could push every international tournament back by a year and find a window for it mm. um, suddenly. But then the IPL goes ahead the very next day after the T20 World Cup is cancelled. Yeah, and I, I think what's, what is extra puzzling about it is that, you know, the IPL will, I would imagine, as usual, be jam-packed with uh, talent from around the world. So, 
what's the difference really in terms of the T20 World Cup being on and, and the IPL? Um, what do you think about that, Nai? Uh, into you know, in terms of them being cancelled and one being on, it's a strange one. Like Kieran said, if you can, if you cancel a world tournament, basically saying it's not safe for players from all over the world to travel, how can you then allow? another tournament where players from all around the world do travel. Um, it's crazy, really isn't it? make much sense. I mean, there is one thing that I, I watch. Is a, is a film on Netflix called The Gentleman's Game, and it's done by a guy called Jared Kimber, who is a cricket journalist. And he goes undercover, and he's working for the ICC. Um, it's genuinely worth a watch, because he discovered that 70% of the ICC's money goes to three countries. So that's the ECB, Cricket Australia, or I think it's ACB it's called, and the BCCI. So you've got 70% of the wealth going to three cricketing boards and the other eight international teams have to scrap between 30%. So, you know, and then you have issues where countries like India can say to New Zealand or West Indies, oh, well, we just won't talk unless you give us these rights, unless you do this. So, that's pure, it's power, like Kieran said. The BCC have got probably the ICC by the balls. So we'll cancel the ICC World Cup, but we'll allow the BCCI IPL to go ahead. Doesn't really make much sense. Can yeah. only be money. Yeah, this is, that's what it comes down to, is, is basically is the, is the money aspect of it. Um, it's just about a dollar every time, though, isn't it? It's yeah. just how it is. Um, it's just sadly the way things are going. Um, and obviously, as... Um, Nye and Kieran said they're, they're very powerful people and, th- and they'll always get what they want. Yeah. Yeah, and the, uh, you, can't see any, you can't see any change coming on that, on that front either, can you? Do you know what I mean? It's, it, it seems like it's going to be that for the foreseeable future. So. Do you think, though, that, like, because I was looking at the West Indies team that didn't tour, there was three. There was, uh, was it Dwayne Barvo, Shimron Hetmeyer, and was it Kemar Paul who didn't tour the series? Oh, Dan Bravo, sorry. Is Shim, has Shimron Hetmeyer got an IPL deal? One point something million. So is he going to go to the IPL? Um, if I were a betting man, I know I'd place my money, yeah. So, so he's basically saying he's happy to go to the IPL during coronavirus, but he's not happy to go to a West Indies tour to England when coronavirus. So there's only two and two make four, and the only thing there is money, surely. And the thing I don't understand as well is um, they're saying all this stuff about um, travel restrictions and what's not. So will these players not have even more travel restrictions traveling independently, traveling to domestic tournaments, yeah. as opposed to one group traveling as a team to one country that they're going to be isolated in a bubble? Yeah, doesn't make much sense, really. No, you about think money. so, wouldn't it? Yeah, so I just had a quick look then um, at those players you mentioned now. And um, yeah, they didn't tour England due to family concerns regarding the virus. And um, it seems very likely that uh, Kimo Paul Paul is going to the IPL for a lot, lot of money. Yeah, there he is. Um, Now, I know you had a couple of things which you wanted to ask uh, Simon about, uh, in particular regarding the rules on... Saliva around the ball. Mm. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, you know what it's like. Whilst we did a few sessions on how to get the most out of a ball, shine it, you know, 
um, shine it one way, put spit on it, slide on it. How do you think that will impact test cricket moving forward? Do you think there will, the, the swing bowler might be sort of a dying breed, the reverse swing bowler might be a dying breed? Look, I was, I was really sceptical at the start when they said you weren't allowed to put sliver on the ball. I think from watching the, the test match, though, um, the ball has swung. Moving sweat. Um, the lads are only allowed to wipe their brows or whatever it is. Um, and I, you know, the ball has still gone. Um, the boys have a natural instinct to shine the ball. It's, it's going to be tough for them to, to break that habit. But if, if they can function with the ball and ball swing using sweat, then they'll be fine. Um, in terms of reverse I, say, I don't know did the ball reverse much I think it, it went a little bit didn't it but the outfield was so lush it's not going to go yeah. anywhere oh as much um, but yeah I, I think it, I was quite surprised how much the ball did swing um, yeah. just by using sweat uh, you have to work I think you have to work a little bit harder on the ball um, if you watch the lads who were really rubbing the ball hard because it was just bone dry at times um but yeah, I think that it should be all right moving forward. Um, hopefully, they can go back to using saliva. God knows when. I don't know. But um, the boys will be relishing using spit again rather than sweat. Yeah. Yeah. Now I'm gonna. Hard, I, I think it's. Gonna, I think it's going to be interesting. Um, for example, early county season, April, when yeah. it's cold, you're not sweating. Um, yeah. How are you going to get it to swing? Um, there's no abrasion on the pitches, on the outfield. Um, I think that's going to be very interesting. Well, he wouldn't be a batter, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, I, think, I wonder as well how hard it is because you know, I've, got, I've got a game on the weekend. When someone throws me the ball at mid-off, it's just sort of first instinct yeah. to put your finger on your lips yeah. or in, on your tongue yeah. and shine the ball. I mean, I, I don't quite know... I just suppose you lob it back to the bowler and say, good luck, crack on. Because we saw, yeah. we saw Sibley by mistake, didn't we? Yeah, he, yeah. Sibley, and he went and, to the umpire, didn't he? And, and said, it, I put to sanitise it, yeah. Um, do you reckon the umpires will be as on the ball in, pardon the pun, in club cricket? They'll have to Not be, won't they? No. No? No. No, no chance. It should be, but I can't see it. Myself. They can't no, even no. see the bloody wickets at the other end. Yeah. That's I mean, like the rules are there for a reason, aren't they? So they should be on top of it wherever. But I, I can't see them being uh, overly concerned, should we say? No. But you never know. Um, They'd be thinking of the first pint of bitter, wouldn't they? Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> especially if it's, uh, especially <laughs> if it's nice and sunny like it was today. The, the mind will be elsewhere. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so. Just to kind of finish us off, uh, Simon, I would wanted to talk a bit about your career and, and the, the, the 2005 Ashes as well, which uh, 15 years to the day, I was reliably informed. It started by uh, Nye earlier. Is that right, Nye? 15 yeah, years yeah. today? 15 years to the it day, is, yeah. yeah. Oof, yeah. That time has gone quick, it, I've got to say. It has gone rapid. Um, best summer of my life. Um, played with a bunch of best bunch of lads I've ever played cricket with or taken a field with. Um, but you know, I saw something on social media of, of Harmson's Harmy's first spell where he, he, he pinned Langer, then he got Hayden in the head, and then he got Ponton in the face. And it was just one of those things, right? One of those um, experiences where everyone's peaking at the same time. We've been together for like four years as a side and as a squad of 12, 
and we just literally beat everyone else. And then the only people left to beat with with that legendary Australian side. You know, one one to eleven, one to twelve. They were all legends. They'd all played the game a long time. They'd beaten everyone for what, five to ten years. So yeah, it's just one of those things that came along at the right time where the four bowlers, the four fast bowlers are fit. We had Ashley Giles bowling well, um, Straussy and Trez up top. Um, you know, Vaughan, Bell, KP came into that side, so did Bell. It was just one of those series that everything clicked and went, right, all right, the, the Glenn McGrath's deal with and, and Shane Warren, and we lost that first test. But I think Michael Vaughan's captaincy of that series was exceptional. He yeah, I think was one of those captains. Yeah, he was one of those captains you played under, right? And you felt at ease. All he wanted you to do was to go out there and express yourself. He didn't, didn't put any pressure on you. You could go for four falls in a row and he'd come up, tap you on, on, on your backside and say, right, get a wicket of this ball or don't worry about it. Do you know one of those things? Um, and when we lost that first test, he came into the changing rooms, obviously disappointed. We were all were. Um, we just got Glenn McGrath. He was just exceptional in that second innings. And he said, right, we start against nil nil. We go to Edge Baston and we beat them. And that was the attitude we had on the side. We didn't feel the, the pressure. We didn't feel as if, oh my God, this is going to be a whitewash. We didn't have any mental scarring. The lads who had been beat, beaten up by the Aussies in the past had gone. It was, it was a great place to be. Did you feel, um, like, obviously you would have watched cricket over the years as an England fan and then you'd played for England before, but like you say, you didn't have those mental scars within that team of, you know, being beaten by the Aussies, sometimes quite health, uh, heavily. Yeah. Did you feel like a change in um, momentum, a change in attitude, it's just a change in the way you felt as a squad going into that series? Yeah, we had, we had plenty of meetings about the Aussies, but it was one of those things we just backed ourselves. We were in a, a great place. We were all very um, confident about our own games. We all knew our different roles in the side. But the biggest thing was, as a, as a, um, a quartet of bowlers, and obviously Ashley Giles is added to that as a fifth bowler, we all knew that one of us would have a good game each, each time and, we, and we'd enjoy each other's success. And then the next game, someone else would put their hand up because you couldn't just do it all the time on your own. We would all back each other up as bowlers and that was huge for us. We knew we could take 20 wickets. We bowled them up cheaply on the first day at Lords, put them off for 184, I think. It was 186, I think it was. Um, so to bowl that Australian side up so quickly was a massive bonus. Um, and it gave us huge confidence and it gave our batters confidence that they knew that we could bowl them out and there wasn't going to be too many times that we were going to be in the dirt for too long. What was, uh, what was KP like when he first came into the sides? Excitable. Um, <laughs> like he's, he, he's, one of my, he's one of my good mates. Uh, he, I, you know, for me, he's misunderstood. Yes, his, his mouth is three seconds quicker than his brain. Um, but he, he's a good human being, right? He's a really good human being. Uh, he's, he's been there when I've had the tough times and injuries and stuff. He's always been first on the phone. But when he came into that side, he was just one of the, he was like um, a kid at Christmas. He was on the big stage. He wanted to show everyone what he could do. And the, the way he batted that against Glenn McGrath Laws on his debut was unbelievable. And he just wanted to announce himself on the stage. And rightfully so. He, as I said earlier, he's the most talented batter I've ever seen or played with or played alongside. And... He was, he was great. He, he was full of energy. He was in the field. He, was always, he didn't stop talking. He was just a good person to be around and to have an address room. Obviously, things changed as his career went on. He became one of the senior players. Our, our dressing room was so strong. There were so many strong characters that he, no one could step out of line. Not just him, no one. 
And if they did, they got put in their place. And I think that was another good characteristic of our side. Yeah, and I think that was one of the things which I was going to ask you about, is obviously in that, that team, there were so many players of just genuine world-class quality, but it was also, it was also full of big characters. Yeah. Was, that, was there, like you said there about, you know, if anyone stepped out of line, they got put in their place. Was, um, was that, did that happen much? Or was everyone so focused on, you know, getting the job done and, and channeling the char- those characteristics in the right way? Look, we had Duncan Fletcher as a coach. There's not many people who step out of line with him anyway. Um, but he he was he, he took a kind of a, a backward, like back seat in, during that series and he let Vaughan lead it. And as I said, there were so many strong characters on our side and we all knew our roles. No one really stood at line and we were so focused on beating those Aussies and dealing with them each day that you didn't really have time to mess around. When you got your downtime in the evening, you would just go for a bike to eat and just try and sleep it off. Um, it was just such an intense summer that, yeah, I lost um, seven or eight kilos that summer. Wasn't eating, wasn't proper sleeping. Um, nerves were there all the time, the expectation from the crowds and walking down the street. You couldn't get away from it. It was, it was hard work, especially walking down the street with Kev with his skunk haircut. <laughs> Everyone was recognising you, you know what I mean? It was a nightmare. But yeah, it was, it was one of those things. And there was, no, there was no real banter on the field. There was no sledging. There was nothing. Was there not? Yeah, there was, it was such a hard series that just, the only sledging I saw was when I was batting and Shane Warren was bowling and Billy Bowden didn't give him a, an LBW. And he, he just got stuck into him, telling him how crap he was. Um, <laughs> and that's the way, that's the way, um, that's the way Shane Warren worked. He... Um, he put pressure on the umpire. I'm not saying he, he wouldn't have got yeah. against anyway, because he's he's unbelievable, isn't he? He's, he's world class. Yeah. But he just got in the umpire's head. Billy, that's the worst decision I've ever seen in my life. And <laughs> Billy starts thinking. You can see him because he's he's a strange one anyway, isn't he? Um, and you can just see him thinking, and you can see the cogs returning. And then the next one wasn't quite as plum as the other one. And then finger would go up. It was just one of those clever. things. He, he's a clever bowler. Yeah, I guess it's the that's the mental side of it, isn't it? Um, Simon, you all right to still keep going with a couple of questions? Because yeah. we're just coming through an hour, I'm sorry. Um, Nye, what sticks out to you from that series, like when you think about it? Um, I remember the test at Old Trafford the most. Um, I remember, I think Simon might have even said it, a few others have, is that Australia celebrated a draw like they'd won in Ashes. Um, and I think, you know, for the guys in that dressing room, Simon will tell us, that must have been massive. To see this invincible team of legends, because they all were, jumping up and down on the, the old pavilion at Old Trafford like they bloody won the series. I mean, that must have given them so much belief that they're going to go to Trent Bridge and win. Um, and it obviously did. And then, obviously, what happened, they won the series. And it, and it, and it pretty much skyrocketed cricket's popularity through the roof and it hasn't been the same since it's been you know that 05 Ashes series definitely did the popularity of cricket the world are good yeah it changed the game mate didn't it because like ever since then there's been a buzz around cricket and at the end of the day people people like to follow winners and I know like whatever sport it is or whatever you know whatever it may be people like to follow winners and for so long English cricket fans have witnessed 
us losing heavily to the particularly to the Australians for so many years that that team and the build even the build up to that test series everyone was excited about that series because they felt like yes this is the one this is the time and as the series you know progressed it just got more and more exciting the crowds got rowdier um is there certain points simon when you look back to that series where you're like that was the turning point or you know that was where it changed uh edge baston i think um, obviously, I had a stinker on the boundary when I dropped Kasparovich. Uh, um, when I needed 15, I thought, right, I'm getting my P45 now. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, I think the fact that we could come back from that and win, you know, Har- Harmy and Fred both accepted that thing. They bowled a long spell. Harmy bowled a long spell the night before. Bob Clark with that slower ball. But then once we did it with two, two guns moving, I think the Aussies started thinking these boys aren't going to give up. And I think that was a huge message to them. I think a lot of England teams in the past might have rolled over. Um, and we went to obviously to the third test and at um, Old Trafford. We played well there. They were lucky to go over the draw. The biggest thing for me was, I think in the first test, Australia didn't respect us. They just thought of us as young upstarts who were going to have a crack at them, who wanted the, the, the title, yeah. um, like a title boxing match or whatever it was. But... I think then by the time we got to Manchester, they started respecting us. And then by the end of Trent Bridge, they were in trouble. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was great to see the attitude change from the Aussies as the series went on. What was it like as well, Horse, at Old Trafford when they were jumping up and down like they'd won the series and they'd actually just drawn? Borny just said, look at them. Just look at them, he said. They're celebrating a draw. Have you ever seen Aussies in your life celebrate a draw like that? And we knew then that they were really worried about us. The fact that they would do that, they would be able to resort to celebrating a draw. I never thought in my life I'd see that happen. And Vaughan said, we've got them. We have. Um, I've always wanted to ask someone that played in that series. um, Well, there's so many questions I want to ask you. But (laughs) in terms of the atmosphere of an Ashes, because obviously, like, as cricketers, like, everyone is glued on when an Ashes series is being played. So what's the atmosphere like, one? And two, um, I think Marcus Treskotic is hugely underrated for what he's done for English cricket. And if he didn't obviously have his personal issues, I think that, you know, Alistair Cook would have actually been second because I think that he was world-class. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Uh, the atmosphere in, a, in an Ashes he is, is like nothing else. I've never experienced anything like that. Normally when you walk through the long room at Lord's, you can hear the odd good luck over this and that. That first morning, when we went out to bowl, it erupted. Honest to God. Uh, the hairs in the back of your neck were standing up. We walked out into, obviously, down the steps and onto the field, and crowd noise was just immense. Uh, and the boys looked at each other and thought, right, this is it. This is the start of our biggest summer of our lives. But the other one was when we got to Old Trafford, normally when you warm up in the morning, no one's there, is there? You might get the odd supporter who was a bit of a, a stalwart. The ground was sold out. Half past nine in the morning, the ground was full, watching us warm up. They turned, I think it was ten or 15,000 people away from the gate. Yeah. It was just wow. massive. And I think because of the, the history between the two sides, it just, it's almost like um, the England fans love it because they want to get one over on the Aussies and it's the other way around. Um, in terms of Marcus Truscothic, incredible. Just... 
you know, the way he batted at Edgebaston, uh, where we got 400, 408 in a day, him and Straussy were just sublime. Um, you know, facing Brett Lee, bowling Rockets. Now, they're a, a real good attack there. And yeah, as you said, if Trez hadn't had those issues, he'd have just been one of the all-time greats. Now, people are looking at him now and think how good he was, but he would have been one of the all-time greats. Yeah, he was outstanding. Um, one thing which I always remember about that series as a whole is uh, Ricky Ponting gradually got angrier as the, <laughs> as the test. Like in the first test, you could see like he was like, he was having a bit of a laugh and a joke with um, Michael Clark and and just seemed quite relaxed. And then by like the Old Trafford test, he was really really upset at nearly like you know every. Every appeal which was turned down, every time he got out, he, and that that always sticks out to me. And I, whenever I see you know the the highlights and things like that, it just always sticks out to me the change in his demeanour throughout the series. Is that something which you know as you're yeah, playing? He wasn't used to it, was he? No, he just wasn't no, used to that was. happening to them. Um, and I always remember I was off getting my ankle sorted. I think I might have been off on my way to hospital actually to get it scanned. And uh, Gary Pratt ran him out, didn't he? Yeah, Trent Bridge. Yeah. Great bit of work there. Um, yeah. And <laughs> when he was walking off, he was pointing his bat at Duncan Fletcher. And it's probably, like I was watching on TV, that's the first time I've seen Fletcher smile in a long time. Because he <laughs> knew that he got under um, Ricky Ponting's skin. And the boys are saying that Ricky was shouting up the stairs because we were in the top changing rooms and they were on the bottom ones. He was screaming up the stairs, saying all these different words and abusing him and stuff. <laughs> Flex was loving it. And, yeah, he'd just blown his top. I think he probably ruled the decision to bowl first at Edgebaston as well. Yeah. Because uh, yeah. that was a, a road. Um, There's no pace in it. And he just thought he was going to do something, especially with McGrath going down. I don't know what he was thinking. He just had a, a bit of a brain fart, I think. Um, but, but yeah. It was arrogance. Uh, yeah, possibly arrogance. Maybe... Uh, I don't know whether he'd, he'd, he'd spoken to a couple of players who'd given him the wrong advice. I know Shane Warne was totally against it. Warne, he was human. Absolutely human. <laughs> um, yeah. But, you know, he made a decision and I think arrogance would have been part of it. Nods, yeah. 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 It's interesting. How much, uh, how much does the, the roar of the crowd help you find like that extra over in a spell or extra couple of mile per hour when you're bowling? Oh, it's uh, it's huge for a, for a bowler, or or you know when you feel them, whatever it is, they're they're like obviously um, the twelfth man. They, they they keep you going, and I always remember that summer how um, how the England fans were just totally behind us, and they got stuck into the Aussies, which was nice. Um, you know, when you play in Australia, that's all you get is abuse. That's all you get. I don't care whether it's a club level or or whatever. Um, state level or international cricket, the, the fans just do, do get stuck into you. That's just their nature. That's the way they are. But to, to see the Aussies getting a bit of stick was great. Um, but yeah, the, the fans were, were, were awesome that, that summer. And, um, you know, they, they obviously enjoyed watching us celebrate as well. Key, I saw you shaking your head then when um, Simon was uh, saying about the Aussie fans giving you a bit of grief. Have you uh, experienced that as well when you were out in Australia? It's not even just that the matches. You could be walking to a restaurant. <laughs> you could be getting room service. <laughs> it's just the nature. 
They are. They, 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 they are a beat of a race. Like I, I don't know whether it's the Aussie accent, right? When they get stuck into you, it, it kind of makes you laugh at times. It does. When they, when they swear, it's quite funny, isn't it? They yeah, get away with yeah. it. They get away it with does. it. Whereas if we said it, yeah. then people would be thinking, you just swore at me. Because yeah. of their accents, when they say it's it, it's weird. like... Yeah. 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 It just seems natural, doesn't it? Like yeah. the... Yeah, totally. The uh, just the flow of it and that. Um, so on the last episode, uh, me, Kieran, and Miguel were talking about dual nationality players, uh, players who kind of born elsewhere and then end up coming over and playing for you know different nations and whatnot. But um, I was particularly interested as a Welshman myself um, in any other sport. I root against England, but obviously, as we know, it's the English and Welsh cricket ball, even though it's not branded as such anywhere. Um, did you used to get like a bit of uh, bit of friendly banter about being a Welshman playing for England? Uh, yeah, I got a little bit. Um, Matthew Hoggard was the main exponent of abuse. Um, I, I just call him the social hand grenade, honestly. Uh, he's a nightmare. And um, I used to He'd phone me up and I was thinking, right, nothing, nothing good could come in this conversation. So I'm just going to red button him. Um, so I'd red button him and then I'd have a, an answer phone message lasting about two minutes of him uh, uh, bleating like a sheep. Um, literally for two minutes, just bleating like a sheep. And then he'd finish it off with knobhead. <laughs> um, and... Just, uh, you know, he just talk about sheep all the time. I said, well, mate, you're from Yorkshire. There's sheep everywhere up there. Yeah. Um, and I know, I just have a dark back saying, our oh, sheep are better looking than yours anyway and all that kind of stuff. But, um, yeah, it, it was all friendly stuff. There was never anything, anything hostile, really. Yeah, it's a weird one, isn't it? Because, like, as, like, you know, as well sports fans, you kind of got that rivalry with England in football or rugby or, you know, pretty much any other sport. But in cricket, it's like the pinnacle of being a cricketer is to play for England. So it is, yeah. it's like got that weird aspect to it. Would you, I think the Welsh team, the Welsh cricket team, I think it goes up to under 16s, I think. Mm. Um, would you ultimately like to see a Welsh cricket team in the future or do you think it should just stay as it is? I don't think it's possible one. I don't think we've got the, uh, we wouldn't have a squad size, I don't think. I don't know whether Nye would disagree with me, but no. I've been asked this question many a time. Um, I just think it's one of those things that is, is kind of there in cricket now. If, if you're Welsh, you play for the England and Wales cricket team. I know it's not advertised that way. It's just how it is. When I was growing up, I wanted firstly to, to play for Glamorgan, and I secondly, I wanted to play for England. Yeah. And, and everyone knew that. And I think as any... Any of the boys who are in the Morgan squad at the moment will want to play for England. That doesn't mean they, they're not fiercely loyal as a Welshman. It's yeah. just how it is. And I think we've accepted it as a, as a, as a nation. Um, would I like to see a Welsh cricket team? I don't know. I, as I said, I don't think the infrastructure is there, one. Um, you know, you look at rugby and football in Wales. Uh, it's massive, isn't it? Cricket yeah. isn't there. It's, it, the, the appetite wouldn't be there, I don't think. Uh, you watch Glamorgan when they play. You know, they've got a fairly talented side at the moment. Never a full house there, really. Um, the success isn't there to, to justify it, in my opinion. Um, and I, that's hard for me to say because I am a very proud Welshman, but it's just life. It's just the way it is. Yeah. Say, would, would you go along the same lines, uh, Nye? 
yeah, there's 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 not a there's not enough people that play it in Wales to justify it. The finances wouldn't make it stack up. I think if Wales had an international team, Golden would effectively fold as a county. Um, so, and like Simon said, there's just not the interest in rugby and football far supersedes the interest in cricket. Um, would I like to see it in the future? Yeah, it'd be amazing to have, to have an international team like Ireland or Scotland. But I think for now, as Simon said, every, well, I did as well. I grew up wanting to play for Glamorgan. And then if you're very lucky and good enough, then you play for England. That is just, that is the stepping stone. And that's the way I think it should stay. Yeah, 100%. Um, okay, so just to kind of finish off, um, Simon, I wanted to ask you, just about your two kind of major injuries and more about like uh, how you dealt with it from a kind of mental health point of view. Like, and how obviously it was, would have been a particularly difficult period, you know, to get through because you were on fire um, both times really. And it kind of put a, you know, put a big, uh, big hurdle in your way. Um, And I talk about mental health a lot on the various shows, which I do. So I'm kind of interested in how, how you dealt with it from that side of it, as well as the differences in recovery for the two injuries and like how you got through it, really. Yeah, so the first one, obviously, in 2002 out in Australia was my right knee. Uh, it's led in the outfield. Just one of those things that happened. Um, the 18-month rehab, and it was six days a week, six hours a day. Um, literally didn't touch a drop of alcohol for that time. Um, because I wanted to see if there's any swelling in my knee it was due to there being something wrong rather than having a couple of pints with the mates. Um, it was it was hard. I was young, so I had a, kind of had a, a different attitude to life. Um, I just wanted to prove people wrong because people said I'll, I'll never come back. Um, mm. I'm quite stubborn like that. I want to prove people wrong. So when I came back and played my first, I went up with the academy. I'm sorry, the England Lions as they are now in into India, and I got called up to the West Indies. Um, so to get back into the side more or less after two years was was a brilliant feeling, and to get Brian Lara first wicket as well back was was even nicer. Um, the second, I reckon, the second injury I had was after 05 was my left knee in India, and that was the worst of worst rehab I've ever experienced in my life. I tore the cartilage off the bone on my left on the inside of my left knee, and it was just one of those things. I had an operation called a microfracture. So they drill the bone to make it bleed because there's no cartilage there. And it fills the, the hole where the cartilage was. Now I had a, a two centimeter hole, um, which is big. So I had to wait for the bone to harden up and, and the, the, the crust to, to come up like a scab. But it was one step forward, two back, one step forward, two back all the time. And it, it just drained me. The, the worst thing was I found that when I was at Hampshire, I was so focused on, on, on keeping fit and, and doing what I was what I needed to do to get back onto the field, that it consumed me. Um, I was vacant, I wasn't me. I was, I had my two young lads with, with me down there. They were quite young, they were three and five, I think they were at the time. But I wasn't being a dad, I wasn't there. I was, I was in the room, but I wasn't there. And that's, when I look back, that kind of, it upsets me slightly because I'll never get that time back, never. Mm. Uh, and that was tough. I remember waking up on Christmas day, right, I'll get down and ice my knee. No, just chill out with your kids. Do you know what I mean? Father mm. Christmas has been all that kind of stuff. And the Boxing Day, I, I drove to the gym to see if it was open. The next day, I drove to the gym to see if it was open. It was just horrendous. 
And looking back now, I don't, I don't realise how bad I was. Um, you know, it was just one of those things that I went through. And then, obviously, I went back to Glamorgan, which was nice. Kids could grow up in Cardiff. You know, I could play for Glamorgan, finish my career there. And you know what? When I retired in 2013, I just felt this weight just lift off me. I knew I didn't have to do another rehab. I knew I didn't have to do another the gym session. Not out of choice. Yeah. Um, I knew I could relax and enjoy myself with my kids. I didn't have to worry about my knee swelling. I didn't have to worry about so many things. It was honestly a shit place to be. It really was. And then when I retired, I thought, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, just that weight that lifted, and when that went, I was just it was great. Sounds like um, sounds like it took quite a lot out of you, you know, from that side, like the mental uh, mental health side of it. Just I would imagine, you know, being a professional sportsman is is all consuming anyway. But then when you've got like a serious injury, like both of those, you're going to have people, like you said, who say, you know, you're never going to come back from that. Mm. And the, the, the athlete in you and, and the, you know, the, that same determination and stubbornness and uh, focus that has got you to be in an, a test cricketer and a professional sportsman is obviously going to drive you on during your rehab as well. But like you say, in how we're looking back and it can yeah. also take away it can be a negative as well mm. um, the, the, the one thing I that I found as well is you put on like a mask and when you're walking into the ground the first question people will ask you is if you're a bowler if you're injured or whatever it is are you fit yeah. the amount of times I got asked that I don't know any bowler would be asked the same are you fit are you fit are you fit and you end up putting on this mask saying yeah I'm fine when you're not inside you're like a, a duck on top of the water and you're ped- peddling like hell and you're in turmoil inside, but you, have, you feel as if you have to put on this kind of false impression to people that you're fine. Mm. You know, you're, you're this fast bowler, you, I'm, I'm fine, I'll, I'll be out on the pitch, no worries. Inside, you're, you're just, yes, it's horrific. And it took me a while to, to just switch off. It took me about a year, I reckon, maybe a bit longer, just to realise I didn't have to go through all that again. It was almost, yeah, like mental scarring, I reckon. So, like, when I think of... Um reverse swing and English bowlers, the two bowlers which I think of are you and Darren Goff. Yeah. And, and you and Goffy, you know, you both bowled a pace, both bowled reverse swing. Um, both had similar knee injuries and I think I might be wrong, but I'm sure I've heard him talk about the same surgery on his knee with the micro fractures. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he had obviously tremendous issues with his knee. Um, yeah. Do you think that is like a kind of due to the amount of pressure that bowling fast puts on the body? I think with, with Goffey, it certainly was. You know, if you look at his career, the length of time he played and the amount of overs he bowled, his was definitely wear and tear. Now, I didn't bowl anywhere near the amount of overs he bowled. I just landed in a foothold in India and I tore the college off the bow and I was just unlucky. Yeah. Um, so, Goffey's was just down to wear and tear and, you know, he's an absolute hero, that guy. He's one of the, you know, he's a funny human being. He's got a heart the size of a, a football. Um, he's not the not the brightest at times, but he is. He's you know he's got he's got a heart of gold, and uh, he'll do anything for you. And and if you were a captain and you had him as as a fast bowler, you know he's going to put a shift in every single day. Yeah, he's one of my all-time heroes, Dan Goff is. Oh, yeah, he is. Uh, he's really is. Him and I got a really odd cricketing hero I have, which people quite often mock. Um, but I, re- I really 
massive fan of Mark Rampakash. Always. <laughs> well, he's dancing on his batting. Uh, that's it, yeah. <laughs> I, I, his dancing was pretty good, but I, I don't know. He, he just when I was younger, like he was just one of those players who I just enjoyed watching. But and he, you know, his county career statistics were just unbelievable. Um, and it's a shame, really, he couldn't put it into into practice so much for the for England because I think he could have been quality. Um, Kieran. Is there uh, any other questions you want to put to Simon or anything else you'd like to discuss? Oh, yeah, I'd like to hear his thoughts on England's biggest cricketing problem, which is getting Steve Smith out. He's got like close <laughs> to 2,000 runs in the last three Ashes. Test is, is ridiculous. He's got 10 test centuries, I think, yeah. against England. Um, what are your thoughts? He's, he's, he's a tough... He's tough to bowl at, isn't he? By looking at him, you look at the lads that were bowling at him. He's high class. Um, you look around the world as well. He doesn't really struggle, does he? Yeah. Uh, he's got that unique setup. He's very twitchy. He's just one of those bats, batsmen that really annoys you, and he lulls you into bowling at his legs, doesn't he? Yeah. He gets across, and then he, he works you in, in funny areas. You think right with with ninety percent of batters, you can just bowl top of off. And then mix it up with a bouncer or, or whatever else, an in-swinger and out-swinger. With him, he's, he's, he's a different kettle of fish. I know we saw Archer rough him up, hit him in the head. Uh, I think when you've got extreme pace like that, maybe that's the way you can go. But once he's in, he's in, isn't he? Um, and that's why he's, he's obviously... Uh, is he in the top three in the world now? He's got to be. He's number he? one. Number, number one. one. So yeah. he's... You know, and he's there for a reason. He's found a way of becoming this batsman that bowlers really struggle to bowl to. And it doesn't matter who's bowling to him. He's got all the shots in the book. Um, he's, yeah, in answer to your question, Key, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah. I think I've seen two things with him that tells me that he's, he's quite different. Um, firstly, after Archer completely floored him and he missed the test, yeah. he came back and made a double hundred, which is like, yeah. Yeah, that's ridiculous in itself. Yeah. And so. then after that, He's just recently in lockdown, ran a 21K or something just to prove to his friends that a 21K is a marathon. So he just did it just because he can do it. Like, who <laughs> does that? Like, yeah. He's just not, he's, he's not one of us, I think. Different mentality. You did just yeah. remind me of something there, talking about the rankings. Um, so obviously, Key, we discussed on last uh, episode about Jason Holder being the number one ranked all-rounder in the world. Yep. He is no longer the number one ranked all-rounder in the world. Yep. Ben Stokes, after his heroics in the, over the last week or the last five days, has uh, overtaken him. What, what do you have to say about this? I think Ben Stokes right now is just, he's on a different planet. You know, the last two, two and a half years, you know, the only blip he's had has not actually been even something cricket related. You know, it's been that Bristol incident, but as long as you put Ben Stokes on a cricket field, he's been next level. And I think I actually like the move of him not bowling as much in test cricket as well because I think that he's such a good batter. And he's mm. obviously re a really good impact bowler, so he does get that breakthrough every time he has to. But I think England have a golden opportunity right now. I think Joe Root needs to bite the bullet and move up to number three and let Ben Stokes bat at number four, which would give the likes of Ollie Popes and Crawleys and etc an established senior batter set by the time they get to the crease, England would be in a, a comfortable position. 
and that will give the two best players the chance to make big scores, big hundreds, you know, double hundreds, whatever the case is, you know, three and four as opposed to four and five will put the team into better, into stronger positions from early as opposed to them having to do repair jobs more often. Yeah. Root does not like batting a three though, that night, does he? He, he has no. to, he has to. He's got to suck yeah. it up. Um, yeah. I wanted to ask all of you, really, like, um, obviously Ben Stokes is just special, but I wanted to know, do you think if you take his batting out of it completely, would Ben Stokes get in the England side as a bowler? Uh, Simon, we'll start with you. Just as a bowler? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, go on. He's, he's aggressive, but do you know what? He's one of those bowlers that you'd want in his side because he'd do anything for you. He'd, he'd bowl the, the tough overs in the middle of a, of a game where people try and shy away. Um, he's just one of those cold-hearted cricketers. Whereas, do you know when I used to play with Fred? He's that type of cricketer. He would do anything for the side. And you see, you saw the way Stokes, he ran after that ball of his own bowling and, and tried to dive to stop the boundary, didn't he? Ridiculous. He ran for in the end. That's the type of people he ran in his side. Um, so, yeah, for me, he does. Would you have him in your side as just a bowler now? Yeah, 100% all day long. And if you, you want to, if you... He's incredible. Um, all right, last thing then. Uh, so I, I just you just reminded me of it. That's why. Um, Freddie Flint off. Yeah. Tell us, tell us about him, and tell us just about that that one particular spell in two thousand and five was just you know it's historic, isn't it? But but like just tell us about him as a competitor. Look, he's he's. A- He's a gentle giant, right? He's a big lad. He's 6'4", maybe nearly 6'5". And he's... There are characteristics um, I see in Ben Stokes uh, of him. Um, the way he approaches the game. Um, the way he just goes out about his business. And when you need someone to stand up, he was always that, he was always that person. And, you know, the lads would do anything for the side. But he was the one that Vaughan he would generally turn to because he knew he was going to get business done. That spell I saw at Edgebaston were over the couple of years, three or four overs, he bowled to Ricky Ponting, and then he nicked him off. That was as quick a spell as I've seen um, in terms of bounce, pace, etc. You know, it was a fairly placid wicket, that one, Edgebaston. It never goes through there. And, and you know, you saw Geraint Jones taking it above his shoulder. Now, that's the gas he was going up to, 92, 93, 94 miles an hour. And I think in the changing room, he's, he's a bit jovial. He tries to, to mess around. He tries to have a bit of a laugh. But when he comes, walks onto the pitch, he poses himself on the opposition. He's such a big guy. Um, his record used to speak for itself in terms of bowling. And, you know, you can see the opposition knew that he was around. And that was the biggest thing I felt with him was he could impose himself on even the opposition. It's just a, a gem to have on that side. Yeah, he's a, he's a match, match winner many times for England when he, he just uh, changed the game. Um, Nye, we had a question. I had a question sent in for you uh, from someone, and they want to know why your Twitter tag is Mr. Bean1927. Uh, I was called that at school, boarding school, for a long time, so... I just thought Mr. Bean, it's either that or Noddy in the 1927. I'm sure uh, yeah. us Cardiff City fans can um, relate to that. 
Yeah, ready for the playoffs tomorrow, Absolutely. hopefully. Absolutely. By the time this goes out, Cardiff will be in the playoffs, hopefully. Fingers crossed. Nice. Fingers crossed. Although, Simon, you were, you were born in Swansea, weren't you? I am, yeah. It doesn't mean I'm a Swansea supporter, though. Um, I'm not a jack bastard. Because you did, yeah, yeah. you did. I got I'm, a video of you doing the Ayatollah. Yeah, I know. I grew up in Slanesley, right? And there's a massive rivalry between Slanesley uh, and Swansea. Um, I've lived in Cardiff 20 years, so I support Cardiff. And that's why um, I did the Ayatollah in that test match at Trent Bridge. Um, KB started doing it and he didn't know what he was doing. So, um, but the thing was, I'd had, a, I'd had a fan come up to me and his, his son was quite ill. Yeah. Uh, and he, he was watching the test match and he said, can you do me a favour? Can you do the Ayatollah if you get a wicket? And I thought, well, yeah, of course I will. Um, awesome. And apparently it all kicked off on the radio down this Swansea because he said, oh, he's a classy boy. He should be supporting the Jacks and this and that. He was all going off. I was like, oh, for God's sake. Um, but yeah, I'll support Cardiff. Love it. Lovely. Um, guys, that was uh, awesome. Thank you for joining us. Um, Subscribe, youtube.com slash ace podcast nation. Uh, follow us on social media. I'll put the tags for everyone's social media in the description for the episode. Uh, Nye, cheers for joining us again, mate. No problem, mate. And you, Kieran. No worries. Man, it's been a good one. I've enjoyed this. And uh, Simon, of course, thank you for joining us. Cheers, mate. It's been good stuff. And, uh, cheers, Nye. Cheers, Key. Cheers, guys. Cheers. Have a safe flight tomorrow, Kieran. Yeah, cheers. Stay safe, buddy. You'll be in the UK soon enough, And uh, everyone else, we'll see you for the next episode. Cheers. Podcast Network.